This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 28, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Criminal justice reform, in particular mandatory minimum sentences, are overdue for reform. Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner and Congressman Bobby Scott hope to reduce mandatory minimums and save taxpayers billions each year in the process. We spoke yesterday. Congressman Sensenbrenner, you... Uh, I have to ask you to tell this story again because it's it's uh, so useful to have this out in the open uh, no matter how many times I hear it, which is a particular interaction that you had with the Congressional Research Service a few years ago. Well, one of the things the Overcriminalization Task Force, which I was the chair and Mr. Scott was the ranking member of, were looking at was various types of federal crimes. And we asked the Congressional Research Service to give us a list of administrative regulations that have criminal penalties on it. And we got a response back from the CRS that essentially said, uh, we don't have the staff to be able to do this because there are so many of them. So we are going to task uh, all of the agencies that promulgate administrative regs with criminal penalties to give us a list of them so at least we can see which ones uh, need to be reviewed and hopefully repealed. I mean, that very idea that uh, an administrative regulation, something that Congress doesn't control directly, could have criminal penalties attached to it seems particularly troubling. Well, particularly when you look at the nature of those kinds of crimes, the violation of the regulation can be a criminal offense. Um, when you think about what that means, it means reporting, um, regulatory things like number of the size of a box in shipping. Um, there's a group that's tweeting out crime a day, uh, pointed out that um, if you have falcons, if you have more than five, that's a criminal offense. Things you might not have even known were criminal offenses, all of a sudden you find yourself in criminal court uh, looking at um, looking possible imprisonment. And so without any control over this, uh, it's, it's clear that um, uh, it's, it's just a situation where there is overcriminalization. So uh, the proposal that the two of you have put together, what are the essential elements of it? Well, uh, aside from forcing the bureaucracy to tell us what they have criminalized without Congress passing a law, uh, we do a number of things. First of all, uh, what we do is uh, repeal many mandatory minimum penalties uh, where the only victim is the criminal, such as drug possession. And we also provide for good time off, which is not currently the case in the federal system. Uh, there are also people who might be 80 years old and use a walker that are still in prison um, really don't belong there because they're not going to be able to run away from the police uh, going down the street with their walker after they hit up the 7-Eleven. Uh, we provide uh, counseling to the people who are put on probation uh, so that they won't have a probation violation and hopefully won't be hanging with the people that have caused the problems to begin with. We provide vocational uh, instruction within the prison for the prisoners so they can get a job when they get out. And we reauthorize and put more money in the Second Chance Act, uh, which is again designed to prevent recidivism. Now, by having a lower criminal 
imprisoned population will be able to save a lot of money and uh, much of the money will be used uh, for the counseling and probation instruction, vocational uh, instruction, as well as the recidivism prevention program in the Second Chance Act, which has been the law since 2007. If you look at the kinds of things he's mentioned, we really go through the entire criminal justice system starting very early. We have uh, money in there for prevention so young people don't get in trouble to begin with. We have a deal with the overcriminalization. A lot of the regulatory crimes uh, are being reviewed and some, some things that don't need to be federal crimes. I mean, carjacking, for example. If you're a victim of carjacking, you're not going to call the FBI. You're going to call the local police. That's, that's really a, a, a local crime. And uh, we have uh, provisions in there for policing so that the police are better uh, utilized to actually reduce crime, be part of the community, be able, be better able to uh, solve crimes. And then you get into the, if you get into court, divert people that really don't need to be in the criminal justice system, people whose offense really is being a drug addict, where we have drug courts that have been proven to reduce uh, future crimes by dealing with the underlying problem. Um, mandatory minimums so that if you get convicted, you have a reasonable sentence, not a draconian sentence. It's totally out of proportion to, so far out of proportion to the underlying crime that it really just violates common sense. And then um, uh, if you go to prison, go there for rehabilitation, not warehousing so that you're less likely to come back, and parole reform so that um, uh, you're less likely to get revoked. If you've gotten out of prison, uh, found, a, found a job, an apartment, and you're kind of back on track, the worst thing that can happen to you is get revoked for three months. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your apartment. You come out as a felon looking for a job, and that, that's just a, if your goal was to get people back in prison, that's exactly what you, what you needed to do. And so we, it's a comprehensive approach. There will be money savings in it so that the, those parts of the bill that require funding can be funded through, the, through reallocation of uh, money that's saved. Uh, some have suggested you do it piecemeal. If you do it piecemeal, the savings won't be there to fund the uh, parts that actually cost money. Overall, everybody expects it to, um, even though you have some parts spending money, everybody expects you to save a great deal of money by, by uh, passing the Safe Justice Act. Well, also, let me talk practicalities a bit. Uh, if we split this up, uh, uh, the savings uh, that exist, as Mr. Scott has said, might not be in uh, what is passed on a piecemeal basis. But the Senate will not spend the time that it needs to go through a whole bunch of criminal justice bills. That's why we have selected uh, to put our ideas in one big comprehensive bill, uh, which has attracted support from the left and the right. Uh, uh, there are people who have had divergent views on criminal justice issues uh, that are now getting together saying, look, we got a problem, we're going to fix it. Uh, none of us got everything we wanted in this bill, but this is going to be a tremendous step forward. What has changed since the 80s and 90s with respect to uh, when the very phrase soft on crime was thrown out as a pejorative and uh, being labeled with that, that as a candidate or as a congressman soft on crime, that that was uh, something that could really damage your political prospects. What's changed since then? Well, I think what's changed since then is that uh, people are demanding that we be smart on crime. 
and smart on crime is not soft on crime. Uh, smart on crime is to prevent people from going to prison in the first place uh, through well-monitored probation and prevent people from going out of prison and coming back in quickly uh, because when they get out of prison, they don't have the skills to be able to get a job, so they start hanging with the people that got them into prison in the first place. Uh, that's being smart on crime. And, you know, we, we see areas in major cities, including my hometown in Milwaukee, uh, where uh, they haven't been smart on crime and uh, they've become real battle zones. For example, Milwaukee already uh, has exceeded the murder rate last year. You know, that's got to stop. And it's just my hometown that's not the only uh, uh, case where this is happening. Uh, we've got to deal with this, and we've got to deal with this in a smart way. One of the things that uh, I think the Safe Justice Act has done is taken a deliberative approach to crime policy. When you start slinging out slogans and sound bites, we know where that's gotten us to the point where we have a well-known statistic, 5% uh, of the world's population, 25% of the prisoners. The incarceration rate is so high that recent studies have shown that it's actually counterproductive. You're messing up so many families. You're wasting so much money. you got so many people with felony records have trouble finding jobs that you're actually adding to crime, not reducing crime. So the incarceration rate has gotten off the chart. And we've had people look at uh, solutions to this, Texas being the best example. They were looking at a budget proposal to deal with their incre increasing incarceration rate because they've codified all these slogans and sound bites. They needed $2 billion in prisons, Texas alone. And somebody said, well, you know, if you spend a couple hundred million smartly, you might not have to build the prisons. And they had prevention, early intervention, uh, rehabilitative uh, strategies to reduce the, the uh, prison population. And all of a sudden, you look up, they didn't need to build $2 billion worth of prisons. In fact, they were closing some of the prisons they had. And so when people are looking at um, codifying slogans and sound bites under the auspices of soft on crime or tough on crime, you're finding that um, uh, uh, all that has done is just wasted the taxpayers' money. And it got to the point in Texas where people just couldn't afford it. And that's been the problem all over the country. And if you're smart on crime, as, uh, as Gemma said, uh, you can reduce crime and save money. And so when you talk about people getting together and broad bipartisan support, when you get away from the slogans and sound bites, all you've got are proposals that reduce crime and save money. And even in this Congress, people can agree on that. And I, and I would point out that everything that is in the bill that Bobby and I have introduced in the House of Representatives is evidence-based, uh, meaning there was evidence that was given to the overcriminalization task force. And we did not go beyond evidence-based proposals uh, that have worked someplace else in the past. Uh, and we want to apply that to the federal system. So I guess what I can say is we've kind of got the emotionalism out of this uh, and put evidence in it, and that's in itself a step in the right direction. Why is it important, uh, in your opinion, for federal prosecutors to have to disclose all of their investigative files as after trials are concluded? Each side should have the evidence that the other side wants to introduce in the trial. 
so that there aren't any surprises. And uh, we've seen cases of prosecutorial misconduct even in this town of Washington, D.C., where convictions have been thrown out uh, simply because all of the evidence was not disclosed under the federal rules of criminal procedure. Now, if somebody is being sent to jail because the prosecutor is not following the rules, uh, that should be a rather serious offense. And I would say that the egregious cases should result in the disbarment of those prosecutors. And, and the disclosure of information is essentially the rule as it is. Uh, what, uh, what's in the bill just, codif- just essentially codifies what's in the rule, what the both sides are entitled to. You're entitled to know what's going to be presented against you so you can prepare your defense. And if you don't have that, uh, you'll be surprised in court, in, in court, and you'll have a lot. There are a lot of people in jail today uh, that are, are factually innocent of the charge, and part of that is an unfair unfair trial. What states did you look to? A lot of states have these uh, safe acts, safe justice acts uh, in their uh, state criminal penalties. Which states did you look at, and, and why were those those states helpful? Well, the the two uh, states that we have really emphasized are Utah and South Dakota. The Chief Justice of Utah and the Governor of South Dakota have appeared on more than one occasion uh, here in Washington to say what was done in those states has worked. And I don't know if you can find two states redder than those two. And I think that that's helpful to me and getting support for this legislation on the Republican side because it has been tried, it has worked, and it has worked in a way that is a political benefit to those who have pushed it. And and it's just not, I'm not sure many states have the full Safe Justice Act, but parts of it, as Jim has indicated, Hawaii had a very spectacularly effective parole uh, uh, reform where people on, on, on parole were not getting revoked. They were given uh, different kinds of sanctions and the recidivism rate for actual, for actual crimes went down significantly. Texas they reduced uh, and, and, and 32 states have reduced incarceration and reduced crime at the same time. So we, we've taken pieces from a lot of different states. And what Bobby has said has got to be emphasized. And that is, is that when incarceration is reduced, crime does not necessarily go up. Uh, The 32 states that uh, he did mention, uh, both the incarceration rate was reduced and the crime rate was reduced. So locking everybody up is not necessarily the way to reduce the crime rate. And I would submit that when you bust families up and when people get out of prison, they can't get a job, uh, that will actually increase the crime rate. Why is this a conservative issue? I know. I mean, it's, well, it, it seems like it's been uh, something that uh, a lot of uh, uh, liberal Democrats, broadly Democrats, some libertarian Republicans have pushed for. Why is this a conservative issue? Well, what I, I can say is I can quote Van Jones, who used to be in the White House and who definitely is not a conservative. He said that there is nobody in this town that has pushed for efficient and economical government than Jim Sensenbrenner. And I would not sign on to anything that did not make government more efficient and economical. We save a bundle of money, but I think that conservatives and libertarians uh, should really emphasize the family. And the best way to prevent crime from going from one generation to the next is to have a family unit that is held together. 
And when you see the statistics that in many communities, uh, almost half of the families uh, have one of the partners in uh, prison, uh, that is simply going to not give the type of uh, family uh, values uh, with, to the kids when they get to become adults and get out on their own. That's why I think it's a conservative issue. And when you talk about breaking up families, some people need to be in jail. When you jail people that don't need to be there, for which the uh, you're not doing anything to protect the public, you just generate this uh, generational uh, problem. And and it, as as I indicated, several recent studies have said that we're locking up so many people that the incarceration rate is in fact counterproductive. We got. About 500 per 100,000, you're getting no benefit after that. You've got everybody that needs to be in prison at that rate. Everything else is just wasting money and adding to crime. And so when you talk about a conservative uh, position or, or, or a liberal position, I think reduce crime and save money um, is an initiative that um, about everybody ought to be able to agree to. And it's not just the corrections division or the U.S. Bureau of Prisons money that you're saving. You're saving a lot of money in welfare and public assistance costs as well uh, of families that are not broken up and where you have at least one or maybe two breadwinners in the family. President Obama has uh, commuted the sentences of dozens of uh, people in federal prison. Most most uh, nonviolent uh, drug offenders are one, should those have been pardons? And two, are there categories of people who are in prison right now that the, the president should pardon? I don't think the president should pardon categories of people who are in prison. I think the 46 commutations that the president issued are great for those 46 individuals and their families. But what we need to do is we need to pass legislation so it does not end up getting up in a presidential pardon office, whether it's this president or any of his successors. And I think if you look at the, at the people he's at the program he's initiated, he has a program where if you've served 10 years on a low-level, nonviolent uh, offense and you are essentially a first offender, he will consider you after you have served 10 years. Well, first thing that ought to occur to you is how'd you get 10 years on a low-level, nonviolent uh, offense for which you are a first offender? How'd you get 10 years to begin with? Because mandatory minimums have so skewed the situation to give sentences that are absurd, and you need presidential uh, consideration. But there are tens of thousands of people caught up in this. And when you're just talking about a few, as Jim said, that's great for those few, but it is not the systemic approach that we need to take. What uh, are the savings to the extent that you can uh, make an estimate about them as, at a, as a baseline number? Well, only the Congressional Budget Office can specifically state uh, what the savings would be. Uh, however, there is a ballpark estimate that it would save approximately $2 billion per year in federal incarceration costs. And in addition to that, if the states follow the lead as they did getting us into the mess that we've gotten, uh, there would be state uh, savings in addition to that. Jim Sensenbrenner is a member of the U.S. House from Wisconsin. Bobby Scott is a member of the U.S. House from Virginia. You can read more about where our criminal justice system needs fixing at our website, cato.org.